Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, our seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello singing Let Freedom Ring, as always, launching the next episode and igniting our freedom dreams. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malika Leem and I are here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're broadcasting on the freedom frequency, and we're tuned into the big and fundamental questions. What is freedom, and how do we get free? How can we name this fleeting historic moment as accurately as possible? We're gathered together in a fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited, and busy in projects of repair and revolution. I'm talking to you today from Chicago, home to many indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy, the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Adawa. As justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists, we must remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for justice. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. Today we have a fragment from the great indigenous novelist, Louise Erdrich. Life will break you. Nobody can protect you from that, and living alone won't either, for solitude will also break you with its yearning. You have to love. You have to feel. It is the reason you're here on earth. You are here to risk your heart. You are here to be swallowed up. And when it happens that you are broken or betrayed or left or hurt or death brushes near, let yourself sit by an apple tree and listen to the apples falling all around you in heaps, wasting their sweetness. Tell yourself you tasted as many as you could. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to shake free from whatever frenzied or frantic editor-slash-critic is perched upon your shoulder, commenting disapprovingly on your every sentence, and write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of our Freedom Seminar, the nowhere of the underground, and the nowhere of utopia. This is a moment to put words on the page, no editing, no second-guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. What and where is your apple tree? Start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Imagine a world that could be, or a world that should be, but isn't apparent or available to us just yet. Just dream a little. What would a better world look like? Now, 
Imagine coming together with others and trying to create or build that possible world. It's work, to be sure. Sometimes really, really hard work. This imagination business, but it's also an enduring heritage. A distinctly human quality that ignites the slow fuse of possibility, as Emily Dickinson put it so beautifully. Engaging the imagination involves mapping the world as it really is, and then purposely stepping outside the known and the established in order to lean toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. This is the dynamic work of lighting that fuse, rejecting the fixed and the stable and the predictable, and reaching toward an alternative, stretching toward the possible. This is where we search for something better and where we nourish our freedom dreams. This is when the imagination blows up. I always return to the magnificent Chicago poet Gwendolyn Brooks and her dedication to Picasso, a poem focused on the huge sculpture that Picasso gifted to our city. And her opening question, does man love art? Her answer, man visits art but cringes. Art hurts. Art urges voyages. The voyages that art urges lie at the very heart of our humanness. Journeys in search of new solutions to old problems. Explorations of spirit spaces and emotional landscapes. Trips into the hidden meanings and elaborate schemes we construct to make our lives understandable and endurable. Flights hooked on metaphor and analogy. Wobbly rambles away from the cold reality we now inhabit toward an indistinct but beckoning world beyond. These are the voyages that foreground the capacities and features that mark us as uniquely human beings. Invention, aspiration, self-consciousness, projection, desire, ingenuity, moral reflection, and ethical action, courage, and compassion, and commitment. All of these and more are the vital harvests of our imaginations. But it's also true that those speculative rambles can hurt. The capacity to see the world as if it could be otherwise unleashes yearning and liberates desire. We're freed or condemned to run riot. Our lively imaginations can be rowdy, tending toward disruption and subversion. Opening up alternatives always calls the status quo into question. Suddenly, the taken for granted becomes a choice and not an echo. An option and no longer a habit or a life and death sentence. The seeds of discontent are sown. Bertrand Russell once said that every person is encompassed by a cloud of comforting convictions which move with him or her like flies on a summer day. And this is exactly the problem. The cloud of flies asks no questions, seeks no evidence, demands no reasons or arguments, and invites no dialogue. They simply buzz around incessantly. They represent cant and cliché, sectarianism and orthodoxy, unthinking dogma and narcissistic self-righteousness. Swatting the flies away and dreaming big is clearly no simple assignment. We are entangled and weighed down by the heavy chains of uniformity and conformity, silenced by the rigid authoritative voice of convention. Because we live day by day immersed in what is, the world as such, imagining a landscape much different from what's immediately before us requires a combination of somethings. Seeds, surely. Desire, yes. Effort, of course, always effort. Idealism and romance, maybe, necessity and desperation at times, and a vision of possibility at other times. Occasionally, what's required is the willful enthusiasm to dance out on a limb. Let's go dance. (laughs) 
It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we visit with comrades and co-conspirators who can help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we share, name this political moment with clarity and hope, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom and justice. We release our most radical imaginations, and we ask both, what's going on, and then, what is to be done? I'm delighted to be joined today by Adrienne Marie Brown, women's rights activist and black feminist based in Detroit. She's the author of Emergent Strategy, published in 2017, and Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, published in 2019. Much of her work as a writer is based around the prescient work of the brilliant Octavia Butler. She published the Octavia Butler Strategic Reader and Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements, a collection of 20 short stories and essays about social justice inspired by the great Octavia Butler. Welcome, Adrienne Marie Brown. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful to get to be in conversation with you on all these things. I have a lot of respect for you. <laughs> well, thank you so much because uh, my respect for you knows no limits and I'm in awe of having you here in, in the room. Um, I've been listening to your pod, uh, Octavia's Parables, oh, yeah. uh, where you and your co-host, Toshi Reagan, begin with each episode with an announcement, or you call it announcements. And I thought we could borrow that and begin right here with announcements. Do you have any announcements before we begin? Well, uh, yeah, I have a new book that's coming out this season, um, which is called Holding Change, The Way of Emergent Strategy Facilitation and Mediation. Um, and in some ways, I think it's what I thought emergent strategy was going to be as a book, like really a facilitation guide. But um, after a few years of it being out in the world and doing workshops around it and immersions and other things, I thought it would be useful to write. Have you spent time with the Tao Te Ching? by Lao Tzu? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I revisit that text often, um, at least annually, but often. And I wanted something like that that was specifically around facilitation and mediation, like just brief little bits of like, here's something that's, mm -hmm. that's true about this. So mm -hmm. I, I wrote that book and then combined it with a bunch of essays from Black feminist facilitators that I've worked with over the years. And wow. I'm really, really geeked about how it came out. And so that'll be out from AK in May. And if you pre-order from AK right now, they have like these cool notebooks mm. um, that they're, they're just throwing in. They surprised me. I found out by social media. I was like, what? We have wow. a notebook? Um, wow. So dreams come true. That's outstanding. Yeah. And, and you say that it, it builds on emergent strategy? Yeah. So it's really, a, it, it is taking emergent strategies elements and principles and moving them into the practice of facilitation and mediation. So it's like, what does it actually look like to facilitate a room from a fractal viewpoint as, a, as someone who's really building from the smallest unit of the relationships in the room to something, you know, often you're facilitating a room where there's 20 people in there who want to move 2 million, you know? And so it's like, well, how do we hold a room that way? What does it mean to be in relationship across the scales of it, or how do you build, how do you do interdependence? Like what does it actually take to build trust? Um, so. It sounds very exciting. And AK Press is a wonderful press. They're um, so great. They're gonna do, they're gonna do good work with it. Um, can you give us another example of, of 
what it means in the in the practical world the, uh, well one, one of the parts that i'm most excited about is in the mediation so uh i'm i'm sharing this model that i call kitchen table mediation uh, mm. because i learned to do it at my kitchen table it's very literal um but it's the i see in our movements right now so much conflict that is spinning out of control because it feels like it doesn't get caught and held in that initial moment and it's like mm. blooming mm -hmm. and so the kitchen table mediation model is like okay when that's happening right our nature is to have conflict human nature is to have conflict it's our dialectical journey of learning that's that's how we shape and form ourselves and mediation really just sitting at a table with some tea and having a, a third party kind of hold space to make sure you can still hear each other because we don't get taught that we don't really learn here how, how do we listen not just to respond but listen to build something new to build new understanding so it's a step-by-step -step model mm. on how you can set the conditions for mediation in any circumstance because i think you probably know this very well that it's not like the need for mediation always arises in very controlled planned conditions <laughs> right? never yeah it's like the number of times that i've been facilitating you know i've been facilitating for like 25 years and i'll i'll be in a meeting it's going great but something pops off and then suddenly that night i'm doing facility i've split into mediation and we're at a hotel and we're in some busted conference room with fluorescent lights or whatever and we have to create a healing condition you know a condition where these people can hear each other so i'm excited about that that piece of it and how you know that is how we practice resilience you know like we have to learn how to practice resilience and resilient resilience in nature just means how do we recover after change after harm happens um and mediation is a way i mean i love the model and i love the uh, title kitchen table mediation because as you say these things can kick off in a meeting or in a group they kick off in families all the time. All it's the not time. planned. Yeah, yeah. It's not planned. And I think um, professionalization of everything means that then it's also like we're looking for experts. Who's the expert, expert, expert at this? And I'm like, this is something we could all be at least um, solid at, right? Yeah. Like we don't have to all be experts. We just need to be like, if everyone was like, oh, sometimes I'm the one who does holds the kitchen table mediation and sometimes I'm held in it. Yeah. I'm very suspicious of experts. I think it's <laughs> better to build a collective than to build uh, a reliance on the expert. Um, I agree. Let's build, let's build knowledge horizontally. Let's build capacity horizontally. Yeah. yeah. So this is a very exciting that this is coming out. I want to pivot to your other earlier book, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Maybe you could tell listeners a bit about that. But what is intriguing is the notion that um, it demonstrates how activists can tap into emotional and erotic desires to organize against oppression. Say a word about that book. Well, you know, I think the root system of it is in Audre Lorde's work, which is uh, she wrote this essay, The Uses of the Eroticist Power. She wrote a lot of different things about um, the erotic and about the body and about pleasure. But that essay, which was published in August of 1978, um, I was born a month later. I got really intrigued by the fact that this idea had been in the world as long as I had been. But when I came into movement space, it was such a, a space of one-upping each other in misery. And we were centered around so much of what we didn't want, what we were against. And there was such a sense of 
we don't even deserve to feel good. Like maybe generations mm. from now, someone will feel good. And um, all of that kept swirling about in me. And I started really looking at the realms of sex, the realms of drugs, which also all the activists I knew were up to, <laughs> you know, mm. um, were involved in those. And I was like, how, what can we learn from what the body knows about what it wants and what feels good? Like, what can we learn from that? that helps us develop a yes that we can take into the world. And I, you might find this amusing. I've been finding this amusing is I keep having this thought of, I don't want a fake orgasm of a climate policy. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> just That's like, I, it's the, to me, it's like that. I'm like, everyone understands what it means when, when you know that that wasn't it and you know, that won't actually do anything that's necessary. It's not actually the, the relief our planet needs. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that that, so often our movements are organized around, we don't want this and we're compromising for something else instead of being aligned around. Our vision is actually incredible and compelling and invitational and, and it is an orgasmic yes to the future and a relationship with the earth. That is a good news. I love that. I love that good news. Yeah. And I want us to all be there. Like I want us to, you know, I, I think about that. I'm like, I want movement to feel like a place that people are like, how do I get there. I want to know, I want to walk in that door and I want to stay for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, you remind me that, that we're living now. And I think Audre Lorde is a great reference point. Another is Emma Goldman. If I can't dance, I don't want to be a part of your I revolution. I want to be a part of the revolution. Yeah. And, and I think that that's it. You know, I mean, for me, there's something about if we're not practicing the aliveness, how are we inviting others to, the, to their own aliveness? If we're not practicing our freedom, what kind of invitation are we making to others? And I remember early organizers, you know, they seemed so miserable and it was like, the sky is falling and we must only study. And I was like, mm, you know, and I, I moved towards harm reduction, you know, the harm reduction coalition. Cause they were like, Hey, we're doing drugs. We dance, we party. Like we're, we have the best tattoos and the best hair. And I was just like, these people are fucking alive, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. want to be in that number with those people. And Exactly. If the movement that we're building is just grim and with a kind of locked jaw as we kind of storm the barricades, who wants to be a part of that? And what's the promise on the other side of that barricade anyway? Exactly. And, you know, I think young people lead us in this naturally. Right. So I think if you look at the uprisings last summer, I, I'm, I and uprisings around the world that were happening simultaneously, there was just so much more joy. You know, I was looking at what was happening all across the US and then in Lebanon and in Syria and all these other places. And I was seeing people dancing, people twerking on police cars, people like claiming space and being like, you have tried to erase us. We are not only still here, but thriving and joyful. And ultimately your children are gonna wanna come this way. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's both a compelling politics and a compelling vision, but we have to be living that vision to an extent right now, or, exactly. or what's the point? I think that's- There's a, this Irish political prisoner, uh, this political pr person who was a political prisoner for years in the Northern, Ir Northern Ireland struggle, um, Lawrence McEwen, and he said, our revenge will be the laughter of our children. Wow, that is too beautiful. Our revenge will be the laughter of our children. I love that. That is beautiful. Well, I think your work has has been in that uh, in that direction for a long, long time. I believe, Adrian, but tell me if I'm wrong. Didn't we meet in Detroit summer about 15 years ago? We surely did. We yeah. surely did. I, I remember it. Um, you know, I was... The reason I moved to Detroit was actually... Detroit summer related. I got invited to come 
facilitate them through some like visioning processes and stuff and just kept coming back around. And yeah, you came in and visit us in Detroit. And I think I'm trying to think if it was like Detroit summer conference, like a gathering that yeah. was happening. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, my memory is that Grace, just the way that Grace would get so excited about the gatherings and the conversation and the potential. And, and she had such respect for you and, and your work and thinking. And um, yeah, so we did. Yeah. So and look so at us now. We look the same. And we look exactly the same. Um, yeah. You you mentioned Grace, and of course, you're referring to the wonderful Grace Lee Boggs. Say say a word about your relationship, because I know you moved, I believe, from New York to I was Detroit. In, I was in the Bay at that point. Oh, you were in the Bay. I was um, with the Ruckus Society That's out in right. Oakland, and then I fell in love with someone who was part of Detroit Summer, and everyone in Detroit Summer was always talking about Grace, 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 and I was skeptical, because I'm always skeptical when everybody's talking about the same thing, yeah. and but then I met Grace and <laughs> I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah. You know, what a, what a prodigious mind um, and what a great teacher. You know, she was very much like, you don't have to believe me, but you, I will, let's argue, let's debate, let's get into this conversation. And, right. and I'm going to ask you to think and reimagine everything. And um, so she ended up becoming a real mentor for me um, and, and not in a formal, not no like you are my mentor, but more like, it was just like, I want to be around her brain. So she was a big motivation for me moving um, to Detroit, wanting to be in Detroit. And it was around the U.S. Social Forum yep. that happened in 2010. And um, I got blessed to have a few years where it was not unusual to go see Grace, you know, every couple of weeks and sit in the room and, and her point out what she wanted us to read or to talk about an idea or ask how my nibblings were. Or, you know, I got to introduce her to both of my parents um, wow. my mom got to come visit while, while she was in hospice care at home. And she they actually had this really beautiful moment where she, she thought my mom was this student of hers that, that was, you know, popped up from her memory. And that's how she interacted with her. And my mom just slipped right into she it. Just went with it. That's <laughs> it beautiful. was just really beautiful. Well, those moment, last years but, uh, were incredible because her body was failing, but she, as they used to say, and, and, and at the bog center, she, she still has all her marbles <laughs> and Bernadine and I went and had breakfast with her on her hundredth birthday. And uh, we had a lovely time, but what always strikes me and I can remember several times when we were in the same room together and there would be grace in her chair and the chair was surrounded by piles of books. And there were a lot of young people and a lot of different generations, but the most agile mind in the room was Grace. And, you know, she might have been in her mid, late 90s, but she still was popping off with the questions and with with the vision, you know, it was, it was extraordinary. You know, the thing I loved about her was she was not a didactic question ask, asker, right. right? Like she wasn't like, let me ask this question so you can get what I, what I'm thinking. Like she was like, I'm really in this question. Mm. Like I'm really in this question. I want to know what everyone thinks about this question. I'm, I'm really working this. And I would remember there was a, you know, there was a, still a time when I met her where she was still writing for the Michigan citizen. Mm. And, and you wrote for the Michigan citizen, right? I got to write yeah. for the Michigan Citizen. Yeah. Some Shay Howell wrote writes an amazing article, Thinking for right. Ourselves. But Grace would be, I I loved it because you would come sit in her house and she would say, you know, I'm sitting with this question around education and and what walkouts mean and you know 
a dropout is a walkout. It's a stance. It's a perspective. And, you know, she would be in this place. And then, you know, the week later, you would see that she had turned that into a piece of writing that she was then putting out into the world. And then those writings would later end up in her books and her work. And she really, for me, was a living mentor of like, here's how you develop your thoughts so that it's not just you in a blank space thinking your thoughts, but like you have conversation, you build understanding, you you ask the questions, it helps you sharpen, you bring it into the public sphere, you let it get worked, right. you tighten it over time. I mean, I just watched her sharpen herself and others, you know, so much through the process that she would, the way she thought. That's actually a great description of you. I mean, you, you wrote about your time in Detroit that, uh, that we, and it's very similar to what you said a minute ago. Our actions have to be toward the world we want. We need to be guerrilla gardening and turning people's heat and water on. We need to be guerrillas putting up solar panels. Talk a bit about that as a philosophy. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of that I feel like I did learn from Detroit Summer and just people in Detroit in general, Detroit movement builders, gardeners, farmers, um, and water warriors. I moved to Detroit, I feel like in a renaissance moment of movement here, um, right around, you know, that 2010 period where Charity Hicks was here um, doing, you know, all kinds of food around Detroit food justice and water warriorship. And there was just so many different seeds that were bursting back, bursting up through the soil. Like it just felt like, oh, you know, but so much of it, I remember when I first got here and I was like, oh, are you an organizer to, to someone who, in my mind, coming from having been in New York for a decade and in the Bay, I was like, oh, you fit the organizer stance. And mm-hmm. this person was like, no, uh, no, I, I'm a community member. I'm a community member. This is what you do when wow. you belong to a community and you feel responsible for it. And I remember that it was so like, it really grabbed me, right? Mm. That I was like, oh, I'm hungry for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How mm. do we build communities in that way? And um, and then it was, you know, there was just, it was just amazing to me to see so many different ways of being. Like people were not like, we all believe one thing, mm-hmm. right? There was, there was so much room for divergent thinking and, and being in real conversation and debate with each other but it was it's also one of the constants of Detroit is that people have tangible skill sets right like it's like if someone is a teacher they're teaching based on what they've been living and doing and working and figuring out um and and there's from the direct action to the you know political organizing and education Right. And media making and all of it. You know, the word you use, conversation, that so marked not only Detroit Summer, but Grace's leadership. And it was always a conversation. So conversations from Maine. The one book that I have to recommend to listeners is Grace's memoir, autobiography, Living for Change, because that's a conversation and led to other writing. So I, I, I think that's a really important word, dialogue, conversation, um, and, and, and non-dogmatic, non, it wasn't orthodoxy that they were looking for. It was, it was thinking as a living dynamic thing. Yes. And, you know, I recently heard someone else say that, like, if we develop our children's critical minds, um, and help them think for themselves, then that is actually the way we liberate ourselves from these existing structures, because most of these structures only work if you have a lot of people who can't think for themselves and who will participate in them. Exactly. And, you know, I look at the military, I look at the cops, I look at the economic systems and I'm like, yeah, you have to, 
not be thinking for yourself, but willing to hand over that power to someone else. But, you know, what I think Grace did, what Detroit Summer was up to, and what programs I love are up to is that, right? That I'm like, oh, you're interested in me finding my own way towards liberation and figuring out what are the relationships that lead towards liberation. Um, There's something else Grace said in that living for change, which is, you know, that at a certain point when she was coming into movement work, she thought she was supposed to stay thinking the same thing. Right. Mm, And that would be a betrayal to change her mind. And that slowly over time, she realized that it was, it would have been a a sign that she was not growing, that she was stuck um, if she didn't actually change her mind. And, and that I think is the gift of conversation is that when you are with people, you're like, you can humble yourself to be like, none of us know, because we're not free. So we are all still asking these questions. They're still alive until we are all free. Yes. We used to talk about the fact that the, the, the first step toward uh, becoming um, a good community member, a revolutionary, a radical, is opening your eyes. But you can't do it once. You have to do it again and again because you're a work in progress and the world is a dynamic flow as well. So the world is changing every day and the dynamism forces you to, to think out loud and to think with other people. And Grace was, Grace was great at that, but, but you were too. You are too. And you know, w- one of the things, Adrian, that you, you said the kind of groups I am attracted to are groups like that. And I, I don't know all the groups. I know the Ruckus Society, but I love the groups you're attracted to, like the League of Young Pissed Off Voters and the Arctic Indigenous Youth Alliance. Um, so everything you get attracted to has that that quality, that edge of both being dynamic and alive, but also being resistant and insurgent. Yeah, I'm interested in... Um like people who are both humble enough to acknowledge that we don't know what we're doing and brave enough to risk trying new things. And right now, you know, I look at the movement for black lives. I look at the rising majority and I'm thrilled by how they're moving with each other and how they're moving in the world. And, you know, trying to hold the line of like, how do we do black led black centered organizing that is also multiracial because that's the world we're in. Um, how do we do work that is at a massive scale, which means touching money in a way that most of us are very uncomfortable with and don't have skills around, but without letting that distort us because we are anti-capitalist at, at the root system. Like these are very difficult things to ponder and to sit with. And I see these groups doing that pondering and trying to figure it out together rather than just being like, oh, it's too hard. <laughs> I can't figure it out. I'll stay small forever. You know, I love small things, but we have big work to attend to. We have Absolutely. big systems to take down. So we have to be willing to let our small be in relationships. That's a dialectic right there. Big, small, you know, loud, quiet, you know. Exactly. Or like bold, Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity. Mm-hmm. They're like deep, right? It's like, how do we go deeply within as Black people to do healing while also making a, a, a tangible impact in the here and now, in the, in the surface structures of the here and now? Mm-hmm. So I'm also very interested in that pathway mm-hmm. because I think a lot of times it's like, you know, we come into movement, it's like they're messed up. We've got to fix them and get right. them together. And I think that maturation happens when you recognize these systems are rooted in me as well my own healing is a component of, of anybody else's, <laughs> you know, any system will fall 
no system will fall if I'm not willing to let it fall within myself. You know, a focus on dynamics, ways of thinking, a focus on um, combining the practical with the visionary and the spiritual with the physical. I want to pivot to, to Octavia Butler, who, yeah. uh, who <laughs> has been another... Um, touchstone for you. And maybe you could tell listeners who don't know, and I've mentioned already, but Octavia's Parables is a is a podcast you ought to tune into and get a lot more uh, depth with Octavia Butler. But talk a bit about Octavia Butler, her influence on you and what she means to you today. Yeah. So, you know, Octavia Butler was born in Pasadena, California. She's a black science fiction writer who realized at the age of nine that she could write better fiction than she was seeing. And she started writing fiction very young and she worked, she was a laborer. So she was someone who labored, worked, had multiple jobs, but would wake up at three o'clock in the morning to write her stories and tried to get them out there. And she was a visionary for her own life and for humanity. So she wrote a lot of manifestations for herself. Like I will be a New York Times bestselling writer. I will um, make a hundred thousand dollars. I will do these things. Like she was like, writing them in journals, but then she wrote these incredible stories. So 12 short, 12 novels and a collection of short stories that were published mm. during her lifetime. And then she has a ton of content at the Huntington library that people are now going through and pulling out more wisdom and content from, but her, her novels, the reason they started speaking to me and, and ultimately have become a massive point of like ancestral mentorship is that she wrote these novels where young black, usually female protagonists who were awkward or a little crazy or, you know, just not your expected leaders um, where people like that were gifted with the responsibility of leading. Mm. And so she moved me because I was a, you know, by the time I started reading her work, I was already a fat black girl who had a lot of ideas in my head and a lot of critiques of the world. And she invited, you know, she's like, that could shape the world that could shape it all. And all of her books have that quality to them. Um, she has a very big focus on change, change mm, as a exactly. force that exactly. is in constant motion that mm. we can harness and shape. We cannot control it. Right. But we can be in a relationship with it. That mm. moves me, you know, it moves me. I always, I, you know, I talk about that, like find mentors who thrill you. Like when I come across with Grace's words, I'm like thrilled. When I come across Octavia's words, I'm thrilled uh, perpetually. And so I've, I've, I've been in scholarship of her work basically since I, I first started reading her. And first it just looked similar to like my evangelical grandfather's work with the Bible. Like he would just read it over and over again. And I was like, I'm reading Octavia over and over again. <laughs> I can quote, you know, there's like a, there's a, she said something that can apply to any moment, <laughs> you know, and, and then it turned into projects. Right. So there was like a symposium, like pulling people together. Like, is anyone else interested in this? Is anyone else secretly reading Octavia and thinking their strategy here? Mm. And then um, there was the reader strategic reader. So it was like myself and Alexis Pauline gums, like kind of pulling, pulling questions and conversations from the events we did um, and then Octavia's Brood with Walida Yimarisha was like, who are some of the organizers today who, you know, we're like all organizing is science fiction. We're, we're trying right. to articulate a world we've never experienced. So right. let's do that. 
and, and then on and on, you know, she's, she's now I have the metaphor of mycelium. So it's like her mycelium is in emergent strategy. It's in pleasure activism. It's in everything I do um, in some way. And, and now just, just now she finally became a New York Times bestselling author. I know. I know. (laughs) And I think you're partly responsible for that. Oh, I hope so. Oh, I I hope so. so. You know, like I, there's myself and then Toshi, you know, Toshi made the parable of the sower as an opera. So tons of people around the world have been watching that. Tanana Reevdu and Monica Coleman did a series of webinars about Octavia's work. So many people mm-hmm. are uplifting her work right now because it's so prescient and so necessary. Right. And and maybe say a word, uh, just for listeners who don't know, um, say a word about Kindred, uh, which, which is probably you know, her most popular um, novel. And then say a word about Black Futurism, which people don't necessarily know about. Yeah. So... You know, Kindred was the first novel that she had that like took off, you know, where she was like, oh, crap. And it was different from other stuff that she was, you know, she was writing about aliens and all this stuff. But then she she got the idea for this story, which is a time travel narrative in which this black woman is suddenly snatched back through time into the antebellum slavery south. Um, and she's snatched back because one of her ancestors is in trouble and needs her help. But this ancestor is a white child of a slave owner Mm. and she you know is a black person who has no sense of herself as having white lineage what she uncovers is that it's a lineage that came through the act of rape it's a lineage to something abhorrent slavery and there's this child and she has to navigate the the wonderful time travel questions of like if i create a change in this history will i cease to exist um, or will I irrevocably change, you know, the life that I know, can I make my way back to my partner, which in the book, she has a white husband, which was a very controversial choice for Octavia. She writes a lot about how would people receive this? So that book, which she took a bus cross country from Pasadena to Maryland to do her research for, um, mm-hmm. she had like a weekend basically took her bus, took a bus, wow. went to do this research and came back up. So yeah, Kindred is outstanding, but then Black Futurism and all the associated fields, you know, there's like Black speculative fiction, Afrofuturism, African Futurism, and most of them at the core is the idea that in spite of what has happened to Black people, um, what has happened to all the different variations of diasporic um, humans who have come under the umbrella of Blackness (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, has not eliminated us and that we have to imagine ourselves into a future in such a way that we shape the future that can hold us. Right. And people do that in a lot of different ways. It's utopian texts, there's dystopian texts, there's blends of both, which is what we think, what Walid and I think of as visionary fiction. Um, but that fundamental idea of being able to see Black people in the future and not see them just as a sidekick or as an enslaved people or as something inferior in any way, but as protagonist, as equals, as free, mm-hmm. you know. Um, free in every sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So what would it be like to, to be free from slavery, free from the prison industrial complex form of slavery, free from the terror that we currently feel moving through the world with a police state that is given permission to kill us because they imagine themselves to be in danger when we're often 
unarmed and not even trying to pay attention to them and so on and so forth. So yeah, what does that freedom look like? Um, And I think the the plethora of people who are writing it is an indication that we are the freest we have ever been. Mm. And then we're just continuing to push it, you know? You know, I, uh, you and Toshi Reagan um, read from Octavia Butler on your podcast, and everything you read knocks me out. But, but I, I have one little thing I'd like to read that a friend sent me a year ago from Octavia Butler, and it shows you something about her prescience and about the universalism of what she does and the dynamism of what she does. Let me just read it, and I'd love your reaction. This is long before Donald Trump. She writes, she writes, choose your leaders with wisdom and forethought to be led by a coward is to be controlled by all that the coward fears to be led by a fool is to be led by the opportunists who control the fool to be led by a thief is to offer up your most precious treasures to be stolen to be led by a liar is to ask to be lied to to be led by a tyrant is to sell yourself and those you love into slavery. That's Octavia Butler written long ago, but doesn't that speak to the moment? Exactly. That, I mean, the thing that Toshi helped me see, cause for a long time I was like, I just, how did, how did she know? How did she know all of this stuff? And Toshi's just like, she paid attention. Mm-hmm. She really paid attention. Like um, there's, there's ways of just being in humanity and being in the flow of the river. And then there's ways of really paying attention. Like what are the patterns of us? What are our cycles? What are our rhythms? And she was in the period of Ronald Reagan, um, you know, when, when she was writing those texts and she talks about the presidential candidate running with the slogan, make America great again, um, which was also a slogan that was being used back then. And it's just one of those things. It's like, Oh, you're tapping into for me, I think she's tapping into the way capitalism and white supremacy work, that it'll continue to cycle us back to this mythological dream of, of power that is actually tyrannical. And, and then the thing that Toshi always brings home is like, this is why even if you hate most of the electoral process, we can't completely divest from it. Like that, that selection process has material impact on people's lives. Exactly. we're responsible for that impact, especially, you know, I was like, unless you, you know, I was like, for those people who are like, oh, I don't pay taxes. I don't participate in the system in any way. You know, I was like, you're living off the grid. Maybe I'll give you a pass. But for anyone who's paying taxes, I'm like, if you're paying taxes and then you're telling me you're not engaging the electoral process, I call hypocrisy. <laughs> you know, right, I'm like, right. you're doing, you're up to something. Um, right. You're paying you're paying, but pretending you're not the boss. You know, know, it's funny because uh, a famous statement from a couple hundred years ago is you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. And I think there's that sense, but, but this notion that you've, that she paid attention that, that Toshi and you talk about is so brilliant because it's one of the themes of this podcast is that you can't be free if you don't pay attention and paying attention isn't opening your eyes once it's continually opening your eyes. But you know what you reminded me of when you said that was 1984 George Orwell's classic and Aljo Huxley's brave new world. 
both of them, when asked, how did you real, how did you think of that? They said, we looked at things that exist today and we looked closely at them. And then we saw in, in one, they saw the, the prison cell, the boot, the torture, and the other, they saw, you know, easy, easy living and sex and drugs as a buy-off. But, you know, they, they saw it in the society we're living in. And that's what Octavia Butler does so, so brilliantly. Exactly. I think that part of the reason we wanted to do Octavius Brood and part of the reason the parables, you know, doing it as a podcast feels so important is because Octavia paid attention. She shaped worlds from the attention she paid. And then if we pay attention to that, we think that it can help all of us learn to pay better attention. So the way the podcast is structured is, you know, we read mostly Toshi does the summarization of here's what happens chapter by chapter. So here's what happens in this chapter. Um, here's the earth seed verses because there's a whole religion that's woven through the whole thing. And then I come with questions. Here's questions. And in my mind, I'm imagining people that have groups that have political community, political home, cadre, something that is like, this is the group I'm building with. And I like to imagine them sitting and talking about this together. What would we do in these circumstances? Mm. Do we have go bags prepared? Are we ready for apocalyptic changes to happen? How would we handle it if one member of our group um, decided to act out and attack you know, the leader of the organization? Um, how would we handle it if we had a conflict over resources? Mm. You know, How do we trust each other with resources? Like These are questions that right now are tearing movements apart. And we can't necessarily take all of it on, but we can definitely be like, we have to all be in some political home practice spaces where we contend with these questions and pay attention to ourselves and the world around us that way. Absolutely. Um, what year did Octavia Butler pass away? So it's been 15 years. So if I'm doing the math, it's 2011, 2008. Right. So, so did you ever have a chance to meet her? I did meet her one time. Um, it was, I was at Columbia as an undergrad, Right. I had just read the parable one, one time through, um, and she was speaking and I got to go and sit and hear her speak. And then I didn't have my book with me. I got to go up in the line afterwards and just say hi. Um, and I always say, I'm so grateful that I had no idea the impact she was going to have on my life because <laughs> I would have not been able to act correctly. And I was already too, um, you know, I'm pretty uh, forward, you know, and she's right. a <laughs> right. more serious person. Right. So she's gracious, but I don't remember the, you know, word for word or any of that, but I right. do remember just getting to be in her presence. And, and now I'm so grateful that that, uh, that path really, passing happened. Yeah. I'm really glad that happened. And I was going to share with you that I do not know her work anywhere near, you know, her work. I did not know her, but I met her once and I met her because we shared a publisher. We both were published by Beacon Press and we were at a literary event together and we were seated next to each other. Mm. And she had her books and I had my books. And I have to tell you what she did. She, I showed her one of my books and she picked it up and she opened it to a page. You're right. She's very gracious, very quiet, very internal. Uh, but she picked up my book and opened it randomly to a page and she read one sentence, and this is the sentence she read. 
Our courage and purposefulness is a marvel from here. We took ourselves so seriously, okay, a little bit too seriously. We were too earnest by half and way too insistent. But we felt personally and specifically the full weight of the catastrophe unfolding before us. So she read that out loud and she looked at me and she said, it's true. I mean, sometimes we take ourselves too seriously and we, and we also ought to always be aware of the catastrophe, but also be balanced in how we respond. I was blown away. I mean, that's a cool thing to do. She didn't try to read the summary or the blurbs on the back. She just randomly read a sentence. And I thought it was just one of the most... Uh, Oh, that's a dreamy experience. It was, it was, it was <laughs> quite moving, I must say. It was quite moving. Um, we are going to have to wind up, but I want to—I don't want to leave you without noting, um, because I didn't say this during the announcements, but I, I have been um, riveted to the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, and I don't recommend it. It's too hard to watch, but I am... Um, riveted by it because to me it's emblematic of what's wrong in this country. And I don't think justice will be achieved simply by convicting this cop of a cold-blooded open-air lynching right in front yes, of the world. that everyone saw. But there's more that has to be done. And I don't urge anybody to watch it, but I urge us to pay attention to the... To the um, not only the emotions, but also the reality that's been illuminated by this uh, tragic, horrible event, um, which also tore the, tore the mask off so many other events. And I think it's important that we note, note the moment we're living through. Yeah. And I think there's been a beautiful um, message moving around uh, that I've seen, which is that Derek Chauvin is on trial, not George Floyd. Exactly. Um, it's been so important to me that, you know, that even that, that I'm like, we have to remind people where they're supposed to be bringing their attention in this. And then we have to remind people um, that we, we want to have an abolitionist stance around how we're doing these things. So we know that justice will not come from a prison sentence for this person, but there is, is a justice in how we pay attention um, ah. every day that we pay attention to what happened to George Floyd and to the fact that it was wrong and to the fact that something else needs to be made possible and to the fact that there needs to be uh, accountability, re- there needs to be responsibility taken um, for these things such that they change, you know? And yeah. I want to bring in uh, Miriam Kaba's new book, We Do This Till We Free Us, because, you know, I think that this is this moment where you know, when we talk about that unveiling, it's the unveiling shows us like, oh, it's a monstrous, pitiful, um, scarcity-based system that is sucking at all of our souls. And and I think abolition is one of the core answers we have toward that, which is we have to actually abolish these systems, end the systems. So when people say defund the police and, and all those things, it's like, what does that actually look like in practice? Well, it looks like sitting just as you did and said, I know justice won't come from, from the conviction of this person into the prison system. And that doesn't mean that there should be no accounting, right? That there's something really important about this process. So I think Miriam's book, which is her writings and writings that she's done with others, it's really beautiful. And it's, it's, it's a, I won't say it's a quick read, but it's an important read. Um, and I think it's it's really one for this time. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, Miriam was 
is I just interviewed Miriam for this podcast. So the sequence is going to be Miriam's going to be on and then you. Oh, freaking um, great. Yeah, <laughs> like so, everything Miriam said, that was it. <laughs> well, actually, what you just said is, I am so Adrian Marie Brown, and I want to just echo it. You said, we're not going to get justice from this trial, but we can get justice from paying attention and working together. That's where justice lies. It does not lie in the criminal justice system the criminal injustice system. It lies with us. And I really appreciate that emphasis in all of your work. I think you foreground that in a way that is a critical reminder to all of us of where we have to look for power, for justice, for love. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I, I, I will say it, I'm, it's bordering on obsession for me now, you know, that I, I really keep sitting with this idea that we will not cancel us, that we are not disposable, that when we throw things away, they don't go anywhere. And that what does it actually take to detox, detoxify our species? If we look at our species as something, mm. it's like, oh, we have gotten some toxic substances in, they show up as beliefs and as practices, but we live on a planet that regularly and resiliently recovers from toxic impact. How mm. can we also do that? And I think the way is in that how we focus our attention away from punishing and towards transformation. And it, it's what I'm, I think it's one of the things that, you know, everyone has a destiny. I think it's part of mine. So I'm grateful to that is that lands, you know, that's like, oh, that's something you think of as something like me. Good. <laughs> I'm doing well, it. <laughs> thank you so much for that, Adrian Marie Brown. And thank you for spending 45 minutes with me. I am deeply grateful to everything you do. And I hope to see you again soon when the fog lifts. Thank How you. I'm really grateful that you are like such a huge giant of movement who is still learning. You know, it is grace, Gracian of you, you know, to, to still be so curious. So thank you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful time with your family. You too. Before we go, I got a homework assignment for you. Adrian and Bill talked about professionalization, this exaltation of specialized expertise. Adrian urges us to be humble enough to know that we don't know what we're doing, but brave enough to risk trying new things. Make a list of five things you're humble enough to know you have no idea how to do, and then find the courage to try them. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo, and to Malik Alim, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a jailbreak of the imagination. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time. <laughs>